church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Well, good morning. It's good to have you all here today. I'm Dean Moyer. I'm the associate pastor or pastor of Connections and Spiritual Formation. If that's something that is of interest to you, any one of those categories, if we can connect you or help you in your walk with Jesus, uh, I hope you'll reach out and make that connection with me. Well, today uh, we're talking about primary colors. It seems like a great thing to begin as, as school is right around the corner. We learned about primary colors when we were in kindergarten. So the question is, did you remember what they were before you saw those? Anybody? Do you know what primary colors are? Pretty easy. Now, these aren't, uh, they're not obviously the only colors. They're just the primary colors. That is, all other colors can be reduced to these three, right? But when we combine them, we come up with the whole spectrum of the rainbow. So when we do red and blue, we have purples. Good. A couple of you got it. How about uh, red and yellow? Orange. How about what's left? Blue and yellow. Green. Good. Really, that's all we're going to be doing today. Um, Thanks so much for coming. Um, Take that with you. Uh, Go with God. All those things you're supposed to say. Well, many of us as children uh, played with toys. In fact, many of our toys are in primary colors. Our fire trucks, our blocks, uh, crayons, Play-Doh. This this morning already I actually saw a Rubik's Cube go flying across the floor, not during the sermon, but I thought there's primary colors. Our, Our kid zone, the walls that we put up, primary colors, right? And and in some ways, those primary colors also speak to us on an emotional level. They they make us feel something. What what are some words that that come to mind when you see primary colors? What are they? Anything? Yeah, yeah, it's loud. Happy. Happy. Good. I I heard that one. Cass, what did you say? Bright. Good. Original. Original. Good. Excellent. Anything else? Basic. I had joyful. I actually thought creative. It makes me feel creative when I, when I see those words. And even curious. Well, this morning we are beginning a three-week series that kind of launches us uh, or prepares us for the fall a little bit as school starts. And we're calling it Primary. We step back and we ask ourselves the question, what are basics of the Christian life? What would be three, three principles or three activities, three things that, that mark the Christian life? So I think we could boil it down maybe to three. If someone to ask, were to ask you, could, what would you say about your own walk if you are a follower of Jesus? What are, what are things you engage in or things that say, well, we do this, we do this, we do this? Could you think of three things that would be distinctively Christian or as a follower of Jesus, to be clear. And I'm wondering also, there's another question that kind of comes alongside that, and, and that is, if we were to identify and then engage in these three activities, would we have a similar childlike joyfulness and curiosity and happiness and an abundance in our living if we practice them? seems like great questions. So now you're dying to know what are the three primaries. 
And it is kind of weird to say primaries. Usually you think primary is one, but we've got three, so we'll have to deal with that. We believe that the Bible models for us that if, that if we're going to follow God, if we're, going to, if we're going to love him more deeply, if we're going to love others and, and, and be obedient in, in walking with him, if we want to experience joy and, and delight in our faith, and then the primaries, here they are, the primaries of worship and scripture and prayer need to be a part of our lives. Now, already you're going, all right, that's it? That's all you got? Well, it's because they're primary. They're fundamental. They're not the only ones. They're not the only things we do or engage in. But I do believe, and I think that you'll see, that once we establish these as primary practices of our faith, everything else flows out of them. I think we can reduce them all to these three. So my invitation to us this morning, to each of us, whether we are a faithful, long-time follower of Jesus, if we're kind of new to the faith, or we're here today just still exploring the claims of Christ, and we don't understand all this churchy stuff, can, can we all just kind of set everything we assume aside about these topics and say, what are the basics about these truths? Well, what would God say? What does the Bible actually say about worship, about Scripture, and about prayer? And I'm wondering that perhaps through an engagement with these three things, we might experience more of what God has for us as his followers. Can I pray for us as we uh, launch into our first thought today. God, thank you. Thank you for your interest in us. Thank you for pursuing us. Uh, thank you for what you did to bring us together today. And it's not by any accident that it is so. And so we, uh, we ask Holy Spirit for you to help us to see things that would help us, that would shape us, not just inform us, but shape us more into the image of our Savior help us walk and live more victorious and abundant life uh, to actually engage in the things that God you call us to do to be more like you. So help us, we pray, and we do ask in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Well, the first uh, of our primaries is worship. And one when I began to approach the su subject, it reminded me of a, the time that I saw the ocean for the very first time. I grew up in a, a northwest Ohio, and the only vastness I ever saw was a cornfield that went forever and ever and ever, and a little house. That, that, was, that was vast. That was big. But the day that I, a group of us, I was in high school. I was a sophomore in high school, and I was on that ferry that took you uh, across the harbor to the Statue of Liberty, and I, I remember leaning up against that rail and I, I didn't even see the Statue of Liberty because I was just so in awe. Now, I know it wasn't the ocean, but it was more water than I had ever seen. And I said, actually, that my leader was standing next to me, and he was watching as well. And I said, look at all that water. He turned to me and said, yeah, and that's just the top of it. 
That's true about worship. What we're going to get today is, is just the top of it. We're not going to explore the depths of it. We, we can't do that in the next hour and a half. <laughs> Nor will we try. But we're going to expose the top. We're going to come up to the water's edge and we're going to see. We're, in fact, we're going to answer two questions about worship this morning. We're going, to, we're going to ask this question. What is God's primary purpose for worship? That seems like a good question, right? What's it, what's it all about? What's his primary purpose? And secondly, as we wrap things up at the end, we're going to ask, what are the primary practices for worship? Just the basics. What are the primaries? You ready to go? All right. Before we do that, before we get the train out of the station, uh, let me give you a quick definition of worship in general. What is worship? Right away, for some of you, you that conjures up ideas, some, some past experiences, some thoughts, some good emotions, some bad emotions. And you may have already categorized worship as something that we attend on Sunday morning, I'm going to go to worship. It might be the songs that we sing. Some of you will say today, boy, worship was really good. That associate guy, not quite so much. But worship was good. So worship in its most general sense is not specifically a church word. It's not where it began anyway. We establish first by say, this first by saying that worship is a verb. We don't attend worship. Worship is something that we do. Just like running is a verb. We don't attend running. Well, we might watch it, but that's not our running. We don't attend it. It is something that we do or we are not running. Love is something that we do. We don't attend love. We don't sit back and watch it. It is something we, we do. We, we engage in it. Worship is very much the same way. Worship comes originally from an old English. Our word worship comes from an old English word that is simply two words, worth, or actually not two words, but for us it's worth-ship. Giving, giving worth or allegiance to someone, like, like in royalty. Here's a brief definition. Worship is the activity of giving the highest worth or glory for worth for the glory of someone or something. It's something we do to honor and make someone more than we are. And worship is also connected to the motivational part of us, the, our heart, our spirit, that which steers decisions that we make. It even, it even moves our posture. We, we change when we are worshiping. And we naturally associate words like bowing and sacrifice and hum, being humble. We even uh, have it in our kind of our uh, bantering back and forth. Somebody does something really awesome and we go, oh, we're not worthy. And what do we do? We, we do this little fake bow thing as though we're giving them honor and glory, right? It's just the natural thing that we do because worship is something we do, and there's an instinctive response when, when, when we do it. Well, I have awesome news for all of you today. You don't have to work at it. You, all of us, are exceptional worshipers. We really are. We're really, really good. In fact, 
You're extraordinary. Have I I made it clear yet? You really are good worshipers. Because that's God's plan for us. This actually answers the first question right out of the box. God's primary worship plan is that we were created to be worshipers. Wow. It's part of our nature. It's our wiring. We will all worship someone or something all the time. We can also say it this way. We cannot not worship. You can't turn it off or on because you already are always worshiping. I hope I've made that clear. A writer by the name of Harold M. Best, which we're going to do two quotes from him because it's really essential to the teaching here. He says that in the beginning at creation, we were all created continuously outpouring our worship to God. We, that's what, that's what we were designed. As Presbyterians, I get credit for actually say Presbyterian in a service, by the way. In, as Presbyterians, we, we adhere to a statement of faith called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Anybody heard of it? A couple of you? Yeah, it's good. And do you know what the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is? Anybody know that? It is this. What is the chief end of man? Kind of makes you lean up a little bit, doesn't it? What is, what is my purpose? What, what are we here for? That's right. Some of you already know the answer to the question. The chief end of man, the answer to the question in the Shorter Catechism, is to glorify God and, work, and enjoy Him forever. That's why we were created. That's how we were, and God wired us to accomplish that very task, we'll call it. Worshiping is what we do best. Worship, as the psalmist writes in his Psalm 33 worship song, he starts it like this. Let the godly sing for joy, for it is fitting for the pure and the upright to praise. And that word fitting is so fun. It's like a beautiful dress or a handsome suit that we wear that really looks good on you because it's fitting. See the picture of that? Fitting looks good on you because that's the way you were designed. That's God's purposes, His purpose for us. It's His original plan. Well, if you've been following or you follow the story of God, you know that that was God's original plan, but things didn't end up quite the way the plan started. Sin entered the story, and it's what we call the fall of humanity. Adam, we, now we, fell away from God's original plan. And now, Harold Best, that writer says, the fall did not signal the end of my worshiping. In other words, when I fell away from God and started walking on my own, it, it didn't signal the end of my continuous worshiping and my outpouring. Something deeper happened far down in our being whereby our entirety was inverted. It was turned upside down so much so that now my continuous worshiping is towards something else. See, how God created me didn't change. Just the object of my affection has changed. And therefore, we are all worshipers. Now we live for the highest worth and value and the glory of something other. So the question is not if I'm going to worship. The question is what or whom. So you don't need to be taught how to worship. 
we find something shiny, something seemingly satisfying. And boy, we, we go like to flies at a picnic, don't we? We're right after it. Because we can't not, not worship. And the Bible calls this new kind of worship, not worship, but he, the Bible calls it idolatry. Oh, thanks for the heavy, Dean. Now we're talking about idolatry. John Calvis calls you and I idol factories. That's endearing, isn't it? Right? Idolatry, whatever our heart will cling to for hope and security and significance and satisfaction. Anything that's not God becomes our functional God. and We bow before it. It's our idol. And this is why understanding worship to be a primary expression of our faith, God's way, is so essential. You see, it's, it's a battle for, for, for our affections, for our heart. The question is, Dean, what do you love most? What causes you to bow? What, what do you fear? What do you sacrifice time and money and energy for? What, what do you pursue? It's, it's no wonder that God gave that first of the Ten Commandments. What did He say? That you shall what? You know, you shall have no other gods before me because he knows the heart of man, right? He knows where we're headed. God says, I am to be your God. You are to be continue. You are designed to be continuously outpouring your worship before me, to treasure me, to pursue me and worship me. And so now you might be asking, I think it's a logical question. So what's the big deal about worship? I see how God might like us to worship Him, but it's kind of a, what do I get out of it? What effect does worship have on me? And it really does have an effect on me. One writer says, we become what we worship either for ruin or for restoration. We become what we worship either for ruin or restoration. A summary of that might be, Worship is spiritually transforming. It changes us. When we engage in the activity of worship, whatever we're worshiping, it actually changes us on the inside. It has an effect on us. And, and God's, God's call to us, His loving gift toward us, is, is to make us more like Him. Is, he says, worship me. So you become like me. That's the gift of worship. That's what he calls us and he invites us to. Here's an illustration. Last week, um, Aaron concluded our uh, series on wisdom, uh, talking about treasure, our, our money. Jesus said in Matthew 6, you, you know this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? And, and what's out here? Well, I'm going to do anything I can to make sure that my treasure is not only built, but preserved. I, I'm, I'm giving away. I'm, it becomes my functional idol. And I pursue it. In the Old Testament, God's people had turned their hearts away from Him and began to, make, uh, began to embrace the, the pagan culture around them. There's a, uh, 
an event in Exodus 32 where Moses went up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandment thing going. And he was up there for a really long time, and the people of Israel were waiting down below. And, you know, they're, what's going on? They kind of get distracted, and they see all the pagan cultures around them. I'm really summarizing this very quickly, by the way. And so they, they've been, hey, well, let's make our own gods. Let's, we need something to bow to. And so they start collecting all their things, and they make these little idol calves of gold. And they begin to, they begin to worship these, these idols. And the psalmist, many years later, refers back to that episode and, and writes this. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, the noses, they do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, and do not walk, and they do not make a sound with their throat. And here's the key verse. In other words, he's saying, as a result of that, as the result of creating their own idols, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. God's people had become spiritually lifeless and speechless and useless in the hands of God because they had become like the idols that they were forming. In a a most practical sense, we can say if I pursue treasure with all my heart and I build my own little empires, then I become like them. What does that look like? It looks like greed overtakes me. I become this greedy person. That's what it looks like when I become like what I worship. Before I pursue my my own status or my own position, our, our life will eventually... If, if that's all there is, and that's where I really bow my life, then everything that I do, the, the, I become deceitful, I lie, I cheat, because everything else doesn't matter as long as I get what I'm bowing for. So you see how idolatry, how we're shaped by the, the things that we worship. God's primary plan for worship has not changed Because of his love, God is seeking worshipers like you and I who were made for his praise. He is seeking worshipers who will worship him and become more like him rather than the idols we bow before. One of the most notable and clear stories about worship in the New Testament is found early on in the book of John, or very early in Jesus' ministry. After spending a, a bit of time in the region of Cana where the, the, the wedding water to wine story took place, a few other events actually with some worship themes uh, kind of take place. But finally we get to John chapter 4 and, and he and the disciples uh, on their way to Galilee stop in the region of Samaria. The disciples go on and Jesus uh, comes to a well and he meets this woman at the well. And she is, we'll just say, of low moral standards. And there's so much more to that story. But she is a Samaritan. And Jews did not associate with Samaritans. In the eyes of the Jew, the the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were doing worship wrong and the samaritans had were were people a people group that had intermarried and and because of their being ostracized they they constructed their own worship place 
And so this argument, this conversation, we'll call it, with Jesus started around the subject of worship. Both groups maintained that their group, their way of worshiping God was the right way. Tradition had become the rule of the day. Tradition. Tradition. I did the last part. Always the way they'd done it. So here's this conversation about where and how worship should take place. And Jesus says in chapter 4, verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. For God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in in spirit and in truth. Three very quick observations about this story. There's so much, but we have time just for three. Number one is that the Father is seeking worshipers. We are not naturally seeking Him. There may be a misnomer for the church world when we have a seeker service, right? Because we're not naturally seeking God. He is first seeking us. All of us. He's seeking worshipers who will will turn to Him and follow Him and love Him and grow in Him. And He knows how we are wired. And He knows what will bring you and I full joy and satisfaction in our walk. And He seeks us. The Father seeks us for worship. He's calling us home. The second truth is that God is seeking worshipers that will worship him in spirit and truth. See, this woman was demonstrating some of our own inclinations as we worship. We, we sometimes get a little too focused on forms and styles and wares and hows, and it really has nothing to do at all with, with heart. Religious rules had become an idol. Jesus was saying, it's it's not where. It's not on that mountain. It's not not even how good you can be. It's not how loudly or how often you're, you're missing the point, how often you pray even. Not any religious activity, anything that's focused on us or that we accomplish is what God's looking for. He's looking here. And Jesus said another place that that kind of people, those that are just so focused on the externals, they, they honor me with their lips, but their what? Their heart. Their heart is far from me, that motivational part of who we are. The word here for spirit, um, some have maybe wrongly concluded they're talking about a Holy Spirit, but it's a little s, and the Greek word is really talking about what motivates you and I. What drives us toward those things we love? That's what that is. It's the Spirit. God is looking for those that will worship in spirit, that with our whole heart, and that will worship Him in truth. And the truth alluded to here by Jesus, He's actually introducing Himself and saying, the truth about worship is me. You need to learn about me. 
You learn, need to learn that God and his expression of love to you is that I have come into the world to bring life. I, I am the way and the truth and the life. So God calls the worshiper to a, a right spirit and the right truth. So there is a, a heart and a head connection in there. We need to know about God. Don't be conformed to the world, Paul tells us. Don't be conformed to all the idols, but be transformed by the renewing of, of your mind as we live in Christ. So what is God's primary plan for worship? Uh, in case you've gotten lost in all of, all of that, let me summarize it very quickly for you again. As God's creation, His handiwork, you and I, we were created to be worshipers, expert worshipers. That's how we're wired. But we were born not worshiping God. And we are becoming like the idols we worship. Because worship is spiritually transforming. Worship changes us. The story of the Bible is that God is seeking you and I. He is seeking worshipers all over the world to come back to Him by faith through His Son and worship Him with our heart to actually turn His direction and walk in the way of Jesus and truth. That's God's plan for worship. In the most practical sense, there, there are a couple of ways that we're going to look at very, very quickly that introduce us to... So if that's worship, it, it, what are some practice, what, are, what are some practical things I can do as a follower of Jesus that will help turn the river back to God, if you will, to, to redirect the stream of my affections back to God? And we categorize them in, into two camps, if you will. There is... Of these two primary practices, there are the private things I do alone, and there are things that are corporate, things I do in, in the gathering of other believers. We're going to look at those two things very, very quickly. Well, like any new endeavor, um, or any endeavor at all, like a subject in school, a sport, or things that we're, we're trying to learn. There, there are things that I, that I do when I'm by myself at home, and there are things that I can do when I'm with my team, okay, that, that make me better. So I thought uh, it might help a little bit just to think about my application in my own life, that I think running for me is a good application of this. So during the week, I have a bit of a schedule that, that I follow. Certain days, I do different kinds of running. Some days are, are speed workouts. Now, at 56, those speed workouts have been redefined quite a bit, but they are speed workouts. And some days, I, I, I do some interval training. Some days, I do long, slow runs. At 56, these are longer and actually shorter and slower but there's still a different kind. And there's another kind where I, I do recovery days, where I don't, well, I have more recovery days than I do anything. But, but I have this thing that's helping me grow and become a better runner. But there are some things that I can't do that, that don't shape me in my practice of running until I get together on Friday mornings with this group of guys and we run together. 
one day a week. And I'm reminded when I'm together with these men that I am not the fastest runner. I'm probably not going to win any races until I like, get into the geriatric type of things. And, but, I, but it's no longer the point. I'm challenged when I'm with these men to become a better runner because I'm running with better runners. They're more mature in their running and they push me. I can't do that alone. I'm committed to a greater concern for them. No one in this group gets left behind. It's kind of like running with the Marines. Everybody's looking out for everybody. It's not about me. In the end, I know that I'm a part of a band of runners that have my back, who are cheering on mutual success of one another. Now, it's sounding an awful lot like church when we start talking about this, doesn't it? The way God kind of has us working together. One thing we need to establish is that our walk with Jesus is personal, but it's not private. We need one another so desperately. But I need to confess to you, it's not really a confession, it's just the reality. More than being a, a good runner, I want to be a godly, good worshiper. That's my real heart. So I thought this morning it would be helpful to expose a little bit of my practice. What do I do in my own personal worship that helps turn what my natural bent is? And my natural bent is idolatry. And so I've got to do something to retrain, to reshape my heart. I'm not going to give you details this morning because I don't think that would serve you. But I think these three principles, well, the confession of this is also that it's really simple. Really, really simple. But it's not easy. I haven't found really anything that's worthwhile that's really easy. And so the, the first part of it is a bit sacrificial, and that is uh, I, I have to establish a purposing of my time. If you don't, someone else will. It's a choice. I make a choice. I, I pre-make a choice how I will use a length of time just to be alone with God. I've established that. It's regular. It's it makes me sit and gaze the right direction. The second thing, after time, is um, I, I'm committed as, as in my personal worship to engage with God in the Scriptures. What has He said about Himself? It's His Word to us. With the Holy Spirit's help each day, I ask a question. I ask this question: How do these words of Scripture read me? What do they expose about me? What do they tell me about God? I'm engaging with God in the Scriptures. It's, it's real practical. The third is, am I talking to God in prayer? Am I talking to Him? Am, am I praising Him for His revealed Word? It's a confession of sin. Thanks, praying to God for others. It's just those three things. So I thought I would offer you a, a challenge during these next 
three weeks. Maybe you, this is a, a, these are practices you engage with. Maybe you did it once and it never really clicked for you or you've fallen away. I thought it would be good for us as we begin, consider beginning new things and moving forward in our faith, becoming spiritually transformed because of Christ's work in us. Maybe a challenge for us, simple one, and that is this. Well, it's Set aside this week. Actually, go home today and look at your week. And pick three days this coming week where you can maybe practice this exercise. Three days. And the the first week, ten minutes. I'm going to set aside ten minutes today on, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And I'm going to commit to engaging with God in Scripture and pray. Just ten minutes. And maybe next week you can sit and go, okay, that was somewhat successful. I'm going to add a little bit. I'm going to do four days and maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. You see where I'm going with this? Just, let's start, start where we can reach it and see what God would, would have for us. Then the third week, five days, or whatever is led. But the, then, the, then we're going to engage with Scripture, and that just simply looks like, um, God, um, Holy Spirit, help me to listen to your Scripture. So we're going to ask, and we're going to read. What are you going to read? Well, let's just commit to the book of Mark, right? Let's just start there. It's a story of the Gospels. If you don't know where to begin, find a Bible. Maybe it's as simple as you've got the version app on your phone, and it's the verse of the day. Start there. Make it simple and engage. And then thirdly, so after we read a little bit, ask questions, talk with God in prayer, praise or there's the little acronym, the ACTS, adoration. I adore him. I confess my sin. I give thanks. And I have supplication as a, as a biblical word of praying for others. Maybe that's what we do. Start small. Three days, four days, five days. The time is irrelevant. The time will eventually change. Then the last thing as we wrap up. This, this part of the challenge from the personal to is, is asking all of us to consider the life-giving experience and joy of coming together every week in corporate worship. For many of the same reasons that I talked about with running, it's an important part of our, our lives as we acknowledge and practice walking with Jesus in the context and, and of, of our church family. You may have, you may have heard this uh, verse before. It's this incredible summary, Hebrews 10:24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here are a few thoughts for us to consider when we gather every week, like runners in the race of faith gathering to worship. Remind ourselves, remind yourself that I am not isolated, an isolated worshiper. I belong to something alive and much bigger than myself much more dynamic. In fact, consider the possibility that your absence is someone else's loss in the ministry of encouragement. Gosh, if you're not here, who's going to give that word and that hug? 
We need one another. We need that synergy. I'm, secondly, as I'm challenged to be a God worshiper when I'm here because I'm reminded weekly that God is seeking me. I'm a forgetful person. I need to be, I need to be reminded over and over and over again that God is seeking me through His Son, Jesus. I need that gospel rehearsed in my head. Thirdly, I'm committed to the greater concern for others. We mentioned that just a second ago. I'm, I'm, I'm available. I'm God's instrument as a worshiper to spur others on to be worshipers of God. And then finally, in the end, I know that I am a part of a band of worshipers, a church community, followers of Jesus that love Him, and we all experience the same joy and hope of following Jesus. We all pursue Him together. We need to know that. We need to be reminded. But perhaps that's not the first place. Maybe our first step is even simpler. Maybe we should begin by asking a self-examining question in the form of a prayer that goes something like this. Lord God, what idols have captured my attention? What idols, whether possessions or people or position or receiving undue attention and worship and deforming my heart? I think if we pray that kind of a prayer and God reveals to us, I think spiritual transformation becoming more like our God and our King will begin to take place. This is where a vibrant life in Christ begins. And that is why worship is primary. Let's pray.